I love my country. I love America. Uh, I've been to a few other countries. I love it. I was raised in America. I remember as a kid, you know, having so much fun in first and second grade, making my own American flag. I mean, I, look, I'll be the first to admit I've been indoctrinated to love my country. But at least I don't live in Cuba. At least I wasn't indoctrinated to believe in the Russian way or, or raised in China and believe in the infallibility of my government. No, I love America because I love Americans. I love the, the diversity of this country. I love the fact that you can go from one end of the country without to the other without having to show your papers. I love the fact that there's a unique quality to every region and corridor. Uh, it is uh, of many one, uh, e pluribus unum. I, I love the, the history. I love the story. I love everything about America because it, it is such a rich, it's, it's a shining example of what people who are focused on liberty can do when their government isn't breathing down their necks. And I love all of it. I love it so much. I just want to give it a big bear hug every day in my neighborhood. I say to myself often, gosh, if the rest of the world could live just like me, we would all get along. Okay, so we have nice lawns and we have TV and we have all the the the, the superficiality of it, but that's not America. That's just some of America. Most of America is just plain old freedom. If I want to get up and walk to the store, I can walk to the store. I don't have to prove to anybody that I have a right to be here. It's given to me by God, and my government recognizes it, and I love it, okay? So when I hear the President of the United States, the President of the United States, that has a lineage that goes all the way back 46 presidents ago, George Washington started it all. And whether you like it or not, every president, you have to hold respect for the office because they are the elected leader of our country. But what does it say about an elected leader when he says, no, you can't celebrate the 4th of July on because I say so? And that is what I found out today. Last year, maybe the year before, we had COVID, different thing, different situation happening. But do you know what Joe Biden did? And I just found out about it earlier because that darling of a governor, uh, what's her name? Naomi? Nomi? What's her name? The You know Suede. What's her name? Her name escapes me. I want to say Naomi Judd. But uh, the governor, Christy Nome, that's it, Christy. She said on TV today that Biden's administration will not give her permission for them to have Fourth of July fireworks at Mount Rushmore, where the president's faces are, that big rock that was chiseled out of granite back in the old days before all of us. Now, that's a symbol of a lot of things. Maybe the, uh, the native tribes that live in that area look at it differently. I'm sure they do. I'm sure they do, but they could be speaking French right now. And I, I, I try to remind folks of that, you know, it, there's so much history that people are not taught. And it's a travesty, really, because it's all uh, interventionist, revisionist history. I, I guarantee you within a generation, it will no longer be called the White House because white means slavery, oppression, subjugation exploitation. 
they're going to change it to the people's house because slowly but surely uh, the educational industry, the media, they're all the culture, uh, the culture warriors, they're all insidiously trying to get you to think in terms of oppressor and oppressed. And one day, mark my words, you, you will see somebody will come up with the notion that White House is a trigger phrase. The, the word white is a trigger word. And therefore, we must, out of the consideration of all of those people who are not Americans, we should not call it White House. Because if we call it White House, we're just bringing back the history of oppression and slavery and racism in our country. And, and, and as we further along this road collectively go, you'll see, you'll see that people will start gravitating to that idea. They'll start saying, you know, that's a good point. It was a bad time. We were bad people. We were bad back then. And we need to atone for our sins. We need to stop calling it the White House. Oh, I might upset somebody. I might offend somebody. I might cause them great grievance. So what's the president doing here? What is he trying to accomplish? He's trying to say, screw you to America. Actually, what he's trying to say is, Trump gave you a right to do it. I'm taking it away. That's what this is all about. This is like a, it's like a spat between two siblings. And one's trying to prove he has more gravitas than the other or somehow has more power because he can restrict. This guy's unbelievably naive. Uh, nobody knows that this is happening. Biden is prohibiting people from celebrating 4th of July at one of our national landmarks. And the reason, well, they came up with a whole bunch of reasons. Oh, tribal grievances. There's a tribe nearby that didn't want it to happen because it brings back Matt Bat. PTSD memories. Uh, there was another uh, group that said, "Oh, it might be dangerous for the wildlife. It might, you know, because of fireworks and the danger." This is all, as as Biden would say, malarkey. This is about him, you know. Pardon the expression, urinating all over his bush, so that all the people will stay away. Think about the underlying tones of his decision to arbitrarily just say no. I'm not going to let patriotic Americans that probably didn't vote for me celebrate 4th of July, our national holiday, our national birthday. Uh, you know, it reminds me of when I was at a celebration on the West Coast and I was at this big function that they did. This is like three, four years ago. And my wife and I were walking along the area of the beach where they were going to have the fireworks later that day. And uh, people were starting to set up. And I noticed everywhere, I even took a picture of it, there were these, these posters all over the place, park benches and signs, and it had a litany of things that you couldn't do. There must have been 12, 15 things you couldn't do. Uh, no open beverage cans, no lighting of fireworks, no sand pits, no alcohol, no this, no that, no sitting for more than, no, no riding of bicycles. And then at the very end, it says, enjoy your freedoms. Happy Independence Day. So here we are on the on the verge of celebrating our independence from tyranny. And yet we have a tyrannical government telling us that we're not allowed to celebrate on the very monument that celebrates American independence. Isn't that strange to you? Don't you find that irritating? I find it irritating and it makes me want to pick up the phone and say, what the hell are you doing? 
Who the hell do you think you are? Is this a tyrannical government? Did I wake up t today? I mean, all the things that the liberals were upset about before, if you remember, uh, they were worried that Trump was going to be a tyrannical dictator. But what's this guy doing? I mean, I wasn't planning on going to South Dakota, but I have good friends there. As, as a matter of fact, one of my friends who actually uh, named his company after the mountains, and he's been on the program before, Jan Gray, the attorney, the Harvard-trained lawyer who sometimes comes on and explains things to us. His son is the Secretary of State, or will be maybe, hopefully, but has served as a state assemblyman for more than eight years. This man has dedicated his life to his country. He was a Democrat at one point. Uh, he knew all the greats. He was at all the big events. I'm going to try to get him on the show, and he can explain to me what was going on here, because I, I just am so greatly offended. Not You know, look, Biden can do whatever he wants. He's doing it anyway. But this, this strikes at the heart of patriotism. At a time when people want to feel good about their country, and every day they wake up and there's less and less to feel good about, you know, this is a low blow to people who love their country and want to celebrate. And he's basically saying, go home. There's no party here tonight. Not on my watch. I mean, that's got to be very irritating. I'm calling on people. Spread the word. If you're a fellow show, a talk show host, if you're listening to this, if, if you're uh, someone who's related to somebody who writes a column, if there's somebody in your, in your community that you can call, uh, a local mayor or somebody, have them reach out to the congressperson in your district or the senator in your state and have them hear from you about this ridiculous spat that's going on between our president and the former president. It has to stop. It's like children in a bad divorce. I want to be able to celebrate fireworks. I want my fellow men to be able to celebrate the red, the white, and the blue, the diversity of this country. And the symbolism of those those very freedoms as we celebrate on the Fourth of July, and damn it, we should be able to do it at a at a, a national monument that was carved to honor those very men who carried the torch of freedom. I'm Jim Watkins. We will continue. I want you to know this is nothing personal. It's purely business. <laughs> you ever get a phone call? And it's a person on the other end and they're asking you questions and you start answering and then you realize that you're not talking to a person. I was it about a month ago I drove through a fast food restaurant and I the person said, Welcome to blah blah blah. Would you like to have an apple pie today? And or they'll say, Did you order by app? or whatever the question is, and like a fool I'll say, No, I didn't, and then another voice comes on. Hello, welcome. Can I take your order? What that what that is 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 AI. It's artificial intelligence that sounds maybe even looks like a human being having a conversation with you, and you react to it, and then you realize you're talking to a computer. Well, we're going to talk to a guy by the name of uh, Dr. Robert Marks. He's an author of many many books. He's a distinguished professor of electrical and computer engineering. He has a podcast called Mind Matters. He is also, quite impressively, the director of Discovery Institutions Walt, Institute's Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence. And I wanted to have him on the program today because uh, 
you know, with, with all this talk from people like Elon Musk and Zuckerberg and what Meta is trying to do, I thought, you know, let's have a conversation about artificial intelligence and what we should be worried about and what we shouldn't be worried about. So, Dr. Marks, thank you for joining me on The Robert Davi Show. How are you? And welcome to the program. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. Yeah, it's good to have you here. So tell me about... Uh, there's a, a lot of different interesting questions, but first of all, what shouldn't we be afraid of when it comes to AI? W what are fears that maybe are unfounded? Well, I think that one of them is that artificial intelligence itself will never become sentient. It will never be creative. It'll never understand what it's doing. And so AI is basically a tool. And like any tool, like electricity, for example, uh, you can use it for either good or bad. And there's going to be consequences to it. With electricity, you can still burn down your house with frayed wiring or get electrocuted if you're a, an electro, uh, one of those guys that climbs the poles and messes around with the high-tension wires. But, uh, you know, they, they, the benefits outweigh the consequences. And it's the same thing with artificial intelligence. We're going to have great applications for it, and we're going to have uh, bad, evil applications if evil people are behind it. It's, it's a tool. There's word that Elon Musk is about to reveal this new AI robot. And I was going to ask you what your thoughts about that are. When we get to that stage, do you think that there will be a day when we interact with robots that look like humans and act like humans? Yeah, but, you know, the question is, is what's under the hood? Uh, I, I I would say that robots in general, like the, like the type that you're talking about, are offering seductive optics. In other words, the artificial intelligence has really little to do with the packaging. And you could have, you, you could have robots that kind of look human and move their, move their mouths and change facial expressions. But heck, that goes back to Walt Disney in the 1950s and Walt Disney, or Disneyland, I should say, in California, yeah. where they had those, those robot um, presidents that came out and talk to you. So, That's no, right. there's really nothing new here. What, what, what's important is what's under the hood, what the artificial intelligence that is driving the robot is, is doing. Well, I read the other day that they're, they're coming out with a synthetic voice where you could actually take a person's voice if you have a recording, let's say if your grandmother, and uh, let's say that she's passed away, and you can take that voice and convert it. They've got all kinds of great tricks now and you could have that voice talk to you as if it's your grandmother uh isn't it interesting how people react to that though i mean it doesn't take much to get people to have an emotional response to something that has the appearance of being human whether it's your voice on your iphone or if it's a voice on your computer or alexa or some other sort of voice algorithm that's talking to you. It is interesting, don't you think, how humans respond to that in almost a, a kindred kind of way? Yeah, it does. And, and this, is a, this is addressed in uh, the book, um, Non-Computable You. But there is something called the Frankenstein complex, also known as the uh, uncanny valley hypothesis, which we look at when we, when we get kind of weirded out by some of these things happening. Uh, Isaac Asimov 
coined the term Frankenstein complex. And when he noticed that anything that kind of looks a little bit partially like a human being, but you deviate a little bit, can be really, really scary. I mean, if you think of the 1932 movie, I think it was 32, it was in the 30s, uh, the, the Frankenstein, the Bar- Boris Karloff. Yeah, that's right. You, you had, you, you had this, this eight-foot monster that moved slower than molasses, and he, I bet you if you put him in the ring with Mike Tyson, Mike Tyson could probably take him out. But he was scary, and why was he scary? Because he had a face that was kind of a distorted vision of, of being human. And we see faces all the time. We're born seeing faces. Uh, babies want to recognize recognize the faces of their moms and we see it all the time you look in an electric outlet you know the plug in your wall and you see two eyes and a mouth there right um if if you look at it and and those sort of faces are around you know everywhere and we're just we're just programmed to look at those and and the closer they are to human the spookier the spookier we feel about it you know, there's been so many movies. I can think of a million of them. Blade Runner, uh, just even as you mentioned, Isaac Asimov's Foundation series is based on the fact that there's an, uh, a ruler, uh, Daniil Oliva, who ends up uh, sort of being the god of, of the planet that he's on because he knows all and he can see all. What about Sundar Pichai and some of these folks over Zuckerberg, certainly? over at at Google or Facebook, they really believe that AI will take over the world. Uh, How how can they they get that so wrong? What are they not paying attention to? Well, they get this wrong because they're assuming that human beings are meat computers. And indeed, we're not meat computers. Uh, It goes back to uh, Alan Turing of the 1930s. He was the father of computer science. He was in the movie, um, what, The Imitation Game, played by Benedict Cumberbatch about breaking the Enigma code for for World War II. But the the guy was a genius. And one of the things that he showed back then in the 1930s is that there were some problems that were not computable. There are some problems which computers can simply not solve. And this isn't hand waving or anything, but uh, you know, it's a solid mathematical fact. So this leads us to believe that, um, or leads us to question whether or not there are things that humans do which are non-computable. And if they are non-computable, then they're never going to be able to be computed by artificial intelligence or anything else. And I would maintain that those well, the low-hanging fruit is things like love, compassion, empathy, and um, anger. I think that those are things which you can never duplicate. Now, you can simulate it. You can say to a robot, you know, get angry. But that angry is that that, that robot it's is a, not going to feel yeah. that anger. Um, and, but I think that the, the more subtle ones and maybe the more important ones that need to be taken into account are creativity, understanding, and sentience. Hey, hang on, Robert. Dr. Marks, uh, hang on a little bit. We're going to take a quick break. We've got to pay the bills, and we'll come back, and we'll talk more about AI in your book, Non-Computable You. That's Dr. Robert Marks. It's about to get real interesting. Hang on. We'll be right back. So I'm having a great conversation with Dr. Robert Marks. 
He has written a book called Non-Computable You, What You Do That Artificial Intelligence Never Will. Kind of an interesting conversation. You know, uh, in your, uh, your material that you sent to me, you said that there is a cult that is developing around artificial in- intelligence called yeah. the AI Church. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. Well, I think that nature abhors a spiritual vacuum. So we have the AI church believing, for example, that they can upload your brain into a computer and therefore you can achieve immortality. Immortality, we know, is something that all religions address. Uh, Christianity has known about immortality for, you know, thousands of years. Uh, so that's yeah, one of the things right. they're trying to do. Uh, go ahead. And another one is that AI is going to write better AI that's going to write better AI that's going to write better AI, eventually achieving a super intelligence. And the Judeo-Christian um, ethic uh, says, yeah, we've known about a super intelligence for a long time, and that's, that's God the creator. So we see that this duplication is, is, is happening. And we have people that, um, yeah, believe that AI is going to be a god. Here's an interesting story. Uh, there, there was a guy named Anthony Lewandowski. Lewandowski was a wunderkind. He was working on self-driving cars in California, and he decided that he would form the AI church. And he formed a church. And, of course, the first thing you do when you form a church is you apply to the IRS for tax exemption. Ah, so I see. <laughs> that's exactly what he did. He wrote an epistle to the church, and he says, yep, you know, we're a, we're a real religion. AI is someday going to be our God as AI writes better and better, um, better better software. And I don't know if he – I believe he got the tax exemption, but the interesting thing is this church that he founded had no equivalent of the Ten Commandments. Because uh, Lewandowski was working for Google in their self-driving car unit called Whammo, and he decided to move over to Uber, Uber's self-driving cars. And yeah. in doing though, in doing so, he took thousands and thousands of um, thousands and thousands of documents with him, and he was he was convicted of intellectual property theft. He was the judge in the case said it was the most outrageous stealing of intellectual property that he's ever seen. So he was sentenced to some jail time. He was sentenced to, um, he, he was he was fined a bunch of bunch of dollars. He was sued by Google and uh, eventually declared bankruptcy. The interesting final line on the story is that on his final day in office, he was pardoned by Donald Trump. Really? So, yeah. Interesting. So he got he got this pass from Donald Trump, uh, probably due to some pressure from some high profile donors in Silicon Possibly. Valley. Yeah. And oh, so, yeah, sure. like, mm-hmm. really strange. So the interesting thing is, like in in Christianity, salvation comes uh, through Christ, is what they believe. Apparently, in the AI Church, salvation and forgiveness comes from Donald Trump. So that's the story. That's the story of uh, the AI church thus far. But yeah, we do have this cult, which is which is forming, and uh, and these people believe that AI is eventually going to take over. And frankly, they're they 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 have no idea of fundamental computer science and what the limitations of AI is. The disturbing thing about this, and I think that this is where they get this idea, 
is, as you alluded to before, they think that man is just a machine, that it's a machine of different parts that if you assemble them in the right way, then that machine will interact with other machines. But you're very right. Uh, A machine could never know a value on something good, evil, uh, sin, redemption. Uh, a, 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 a A machine wouldn't even know that it was a machine or that it lived in a universe. You wouldn't have that self-awareness. And you're saying that there is no way that we can ever develop any kind of a computer that would become self-aware. Is that what sentient means, to be self-aware? That's very interesting. You have to define words before you actually talk about them. Yeah, yeah. sentience is a uh, an experience that you have. One of the easiest defined is one called qualia, which is what you experience when you uh, with your senses. You experience taste and and sight and smell. And uh, one of the simplest examples of what AI will never do is is with this idea of sentience called qualia. If you look around the room and you see something which is red, you're experiencing something. You're experiencing red. Now, you and I can talk about red because we've both seen red. We've both experienced red. But imagine trying to explain that to a person that's been blind since birth. Right. You can tell you can tell the guy, you can say, Well, you know, it's at this it's this it's at this frequency on the electromagnetic spectrum. Let's see a uh, blood is red, uh uh, delicious apples from the state of Washington are red, but no matter what you do, you're never going to be able to duplicate that experience, that simple experience of seeing red. Now, if you can't explain it to this blind man using English as your language, how are you ever going to explain it to a computer using computer language? It's just not possible. Right. So that's an example of why uh, artificial intelligence will never duplicate sen- sentience. Now, do you address in your book, I'm talking, if you just joined me, a wonderful gentleman, Dr. Robert Marks, who this is what he does for a living. He is a computer genius. Uh, do you, oh, thank uh, you. Do you, well, you have a long record of bona fides that would impress anyone. Do you worry that people who are uh, exalted humanists or secularists will use AI to control humanity as much as possible, like what we're seeing in places like China and elsewhere, where they're using surveillance, they're using AI to enslave? That seems to be the biggest threat that I can see coming from the use of AI. And how do we prevent that from happening? No, you're, you're, you're exactly right. And uh, the bottom line is that AI is a tool and nothing more. And what it's used for is up to the user. And you can use AI for good, you can use it for evil, um, and whatever. So you're right. In China, they they have done all of this face recognition, which strikes me as very a very terrible thing to do to your population. And... Um, yeah, it's being used for evil there. In the United States, we have all of these great websites like Google and Amazon that just suck out all your privacy and try to sell you stuff because of it. Of course, um, yeah. It, mm-hmm. Yeah, but it doesn't do a very good job. I, I share my uh, Amazon account with my daughter, uh-huh. and I, I get I get little ads saying I should buy diapers and sippy cups. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, they haven't figured that out yet. What is the difference between AI and AGI, which is uh, artificial general intelligence? What's what's the difference? Well, artificial intelligence is what we experience today. I think it's anything remarkable that can be done with a computer. AGI assumes that 
um, computers will be creative and write better AI and write better AI to the point where it duplicates every human attribute. And then it'll go on from there, of course, up to the super intelligence. But AGI. Yeah, I saw that is, once, like writing songs, stuff like that, right? Yeah, well, but here's the thing the question is, is whether it's creative or not. And AI has no ability to think outside the box. Um, since you mentioned song, here, here's, here, here's a typical example. Suppose you want to write AI that, that plays music that sounds like Bach, you know, Baroque music. The yeah. typical scenario is that you take the AI, you train it with a bunch of stuff by Bach, and so it discovers the patterns and all of the different things the Bach use, and then you say, create some music for me, and guess what it sounds like? It sounds like Bach, right? You're never right. going to get that music trained by Bach to play something like by Wagner or Stravinsky right. or some of the modern music. If you want something by Wagner, you have to train the AI and Wagner sort of stuff. So AI does not think outside of the box. It can only interpolate. And when you hear that AI has written music, you have to think of the way that it was trained. you got to look under the hood, behind the curtain, yeah. whatever metaphor you want to use, and figure out what it's doing. And no, it's yeah. not doing anything creative. Right, right. All right. Well, look, I appreciate you coming on. And it's a, a breathing a sigh of relief, actually, because you've made me realize that all of this talk about AI becoming one day our parents and taking care of us, it can't happen because it, it, it all really does come down to the algorithms. I hope people will buy your book. It's called Non-Computable You, and it is written by Dr. Robert J. Marks, and I assume you can get it on Amazon and all the usual places. So thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Marks. Really appreciate it. We're going to have to take off, and we'll be back. Mike, you let me down, Mike. You're making me look bad. I thought we had an understanding. And all I expect is a little cooperation. Sorry, Robert. So I wanted to I, I wanted to cover this story yesterday, but we did, just didn't have enough time. Welcome back to the Robert Davi Show. Jim Watkins filling in. My website, by the way, is the thejimwatkinsshow.online. And uh, we post up articles. I wrote, a, I wrote one today. You might want to read. It's a good article. Thejimwatkinsshow.online. There's no .com. It's just .online. And uh, anyway, yesterday there was a story which uh, I didn't even know that the Supreme Court was considering it, but uh, there was a high school football coach who uh, had, I guess, taken on a free speech case, which he wanted to pray with his players. And some people at the school board uh, objected to it. And so they told him that he couldn't pray. And I think that they even fired him. Joe Kennedy, a junior varsity head coach and varsity assistant coach with the Bremerton School District in Washington uh, from 2008 to 2015. And he began the practice of re reciting a postgame prayer by himself, but eventually students started joining in. According to court documents, this evolved into motivational speeches that included some religious themes. After an opposing coach brought it to the attention of the principal, the school district told Kennedy to stop. He did temporarily then notified the school that he would resume the practice because he felt like it was an infringement upon his first amendment right to uh, pray uh, the school district then offered to let kennedy pray at other locations before and after games or for him to pray on the 50-yard line after everyone else had left the premises but he refused and insisting that he would continue the regular practice and after continuing the prayers at two more games the school district placed kennedy on leave 
The case made it all the way to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court ruled in favor of Kennedy, saying that it was an infringement on his free speech rights. Now, and it's the First Amendment Establishment Clause. Now, I want to bring to you the way that the media decided to take on this case, because last night, as they always do, and I'm particularly calling out ABC because I watch it, and they're the, the, the most serious offender and also the most watched news, major news in the country. So what they do matters, and they are sending a message. And the message they are sending on this particular story is that they are siding with the students. By the way, the students never complained. One, one, you'll hear the story, I'll play, but I want to play this for you because I want you to hear how the media takes sides on particular issues. And we see what they're doing with the abortion. We see what they're doing with Trump. For four years, they constantly took the side of the Democrats. They constantly take the progressive side. Anything that eradicates family and promotes progressive ideology, socialism, whatever, LGBT+, anything at all that they can grab onto and promote as a progressive cause, they will do it at the expense of people who don't necessarily agree. Now, I happen to think that there's nothing wrong with praying at a football game. And if you are a coach and you're leading your students, if you want to say a prayer, uh, you know, I I know where the resistance comes from. I know where this, the, this idea of separation of church and state comes from. It goes all the way back to the great Catholic Church in the 16th and 17th century, and they had their hands in everything. You think the Democratic Party is bad? The church of the 16th and 17th century was ferocious. They were in everything. If they didn't like the way you dressed, you were out. I mean, they were really just an... And people need to know, this is why when the Puritans came and the Pilgrims came, one of the reasons they came to America was to get rid of the powerful grip of the then Catholic Church. And this is what sort of has led to this whole idea of not having state-sanctioned religion. It wasn't so much... To keep religion out, it was so that the state wasn't sponsoring one religion over another. And if they had taught that in school, then you would you would know this. So I understand what the 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 root or the impetus of this this idea of ch- separating church and state, and because our educational system is run by the state, it is a. Uh, 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 part of the state. And so it has to adopt this policy of neutrality. I get it. But this is where the media gets it wrong. Two times in the lead. This is just the, the very few minutes when they're talking about the story. Listen to how many times they take the, 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 the position that somebody is being hurt. Meantime tonight, we turn to the new major ruling from the Supreme Court just today. And this one involves religion and public schools. In a 6-3 ruling, conservative justices siding with a high school football coach praying at the 50-yard line following games, often with players right near him. The school and some parents concerned asking, what about players who might not want to pray? The pressure put on them to join. And some asking, what happened to the notion of separation of church and state? Terry Moran at the Supreme Court tonight. Yeah, we'll get to Terry in just a minute. Okay, so did you see the way? So the emphasis is put on the pressure. The pressure that people will have, the overriding pressure, the peer pressure that they will have to bow their heads and pray to a God that doesn't exist. 
And this is the way they portray it. So because of students, what students? No students complained about this. No one. The only person that complained was a coach from the other team who was probably an anti-religious bigot. And he didn't like it. And he probably won. You know, the coach that prayed probably won. They probably have a great team. They have great unity. Bring together people, the spirit of camaraderie. It happens. This is what religion does to people. It doesn't mean Christians, Unitarians, it doesn't matter. The spirit of unity is, is greater than, the, than the, uh, the appearance of uniformity. And remember that. So here's part two. Once again... Now they're getting to the story, the actual story, and they bring up, they bring back those little reminders that you can't have pressure, that you can't pressure children into believing in God. In 2015, the Bremerton, Washington School District at first tried to get Coach Kennedy to pray privately when he was off duty. And when he continued to lead prayers after games, the district suspended him. In- Listen to the fierceness, the the energy level, as if a major crime is being committed here uh, from the emphasis of one Terry Moran. A letter, the district told Kennedy he must maintain separation of church and state, writing, staff may not indirectly encourage students to engage in religious activity, but must remain neutral. Among the district's concerns, the pressure that could be put on students who do not wish to pray. God forbid that they would have that kind of pressure. They could think about the pandemic and dates and pimples and acne and uh, if I'm gay, if I'm binary, but no, the pressure of praying is just just too much. But who fear they'd lose playing time and their standing on the team if they didn't. Oh. Kennedy says the prayers were voluntary. They don't have to participate, but we shouldn't have to hide who we are and everybody gets to be themselves. Justice Neil Gorsuch writing for the court today declaring that the school district is wrong about church and state. The Constitution neither mandates nor tolerates that kind of discrimination. Do you hear that emphasis in in Terry Moran? It's like you you would really think that there was a serious crime committed here. You know, and and the, the, the coach is right. Why do I have to hide who I am? In every other facet of life, you don't hide you who you are. Inclusiveness, a diversity, inclusivity. Right? I mean, isn't that what the name of the game is? Be who you are, come on out, shine, let it go, let it go, let it go. Wrote, but some parents of former players disagree. When the teacher or the coach is standing up and leading the children, I think you cross the line into an indoctrination. Oh, really? So there's one guy, one parent, again, probably somebody who's anti-religious to begin with, and the idea of a coach standing before his his students delivering a prayer must be just so offensive to this guy. How dare he indoctrinate my children? Let's go to Disneyland, shall we? Justice Sonia Sotomayor dissenting with the liberals, writing that today's decision is misguided and elevates the religious rights of a school official over those of his students. Oh, my God, with thunderous emphasis at the end there. I mean, the whole thing was basically designed to get you to think that something really, really bad happened on that field that day. Oh, yeah. And tonight, the new ruling now from the Supreme Court involving religion and public schools. In a 6-3 ruling, conservative justices siding with a high school football coach praying at the 50-yard line following games, often with players by his side. Some parents concerned, what about players who might not want to pray? The pressure put on them. Some asking, what happened to the notion of separation of church and state? Some wondering. Who was wondering? Do you think there were any parents that were sitting out there? And Bremerton High out in the stands, sitting there wondering, gee, I wonder how the 
atheist kids are going to feel about this. This is this is this is this is where the media gets in bed with the progressives and they create a narrative that religion is simply bad. Yet if that same rule was applied to a person at Bremerton who might have been of the Muslim faith, you never would have heard that story. But you would have heard that story if it was a Mormon or an evangelical or a Christian or a Catholic. Is seeing the similarity here? Anytime it's Anglo or uh, European, it's bad. Roots are bad, it's oppressive, it's racist. Oh, I didn't even get to the story about, I'll have to save that for tomorrow, I've got it all worked out for you. But you see the point here, you see the way they use the music, the emotion, the emphasis, the energy. It's all there, and it's all to tell you, to get you to believe that what they're telling you is right, that there is no place in our schools for religion. And of course, you know, we have three generations of schools that have taught that religion is nothing more than a fad. So it's easy for them to pick up and run with this one. But I hope that I've, I've shown you what they do so that you're better prepared to interpret the difference between what Donald Trump used to call fake news and now he just calls, what does he call it now? I forget. But all my point is, is pay attention. Until next time, thanks for joining me on the Robert Davi Show. Jim Watkins filling in. Don't forget to join me on my website, thejimwatkinshow.online. Until next time, you know what I always say. Thanks for stopping by.